welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking about Ryan Murphy's ever-expanding TV universe. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar sites Hello, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hey, Jen. Hey, Jen. So we are going to get into all things Ryan Murphy in a minute, but before we dive in... We wanted to do a prompt this week that is still Ryan Murphy related, but <laughs> a little more Because you cannot escape Ryan Murphy. you cannot. <laughs> There's so much of him. Yes. Um, and the prompt is, what feud would you like to see get the Ryan Murphy treatment in a future season of his anthology series, Feud? Which, for those who don't know, Feud is his latest series that just premiered <laughs> Sunday night. And it's each season will take on a different feud. So this first season explores the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford on the set of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So why don't we start with you, Matt? Well, uh, I have a, a, a if it was a, a Ryan Murphy, if it was a, for a next an upcoming season of Feud, uh, I would like to see him do the feud between uh, President Bill Clinton and uh, Newt Gingrich. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I was not I just feel like, you to say well, that. Well, I just feel like, you know, like it's Ryan Murphy, so there needs to be something salacious and and sort of like uh, edgy about it. And then certainly there was that, you know, and there was also kind of a media circus aspect similar to uh, what we saw on the O.J. Simpson miniseries, which he produced and, and largely directed. Um, so, yeah, I just think, you know, Clinton versus Gingrich. Would be uh, fun. And you all have all these colorful supporting characters. Like you got Ken Starr, who's like, uh, you know, an Elmer Fudd kind of uh, uh, persona. And, uh, you know, and you got Monica Lewinsky and you got Linda Tripp. And it's just like, I think Ryan Murphy's repertory well, company could have a lot of fun with that. Well, he is doing a Monica Lewinsky season American of crime. American Crime Story. Oh, well, So maybe you know, the two worlds can... Um, it'd be a corollary. Kind of, yeah. It could, it, be a, it could be a crossover. I mean, considering how... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TGI Friday crossover night. <laughs> Ryan Murphy. Thank God it's Murphy. TGIM. <laughs> well, okay, so, you know, I forgot about that. I forgot about the Monica Lewinsky thing, so I withdraw my oh, suggestion and no. I replace it with I replace it with uh, uh, um, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. <laughs> I think that's what he should do as his feud. And I think it would be a gritty, that... a gritty, edgy take on Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. So many sociocultural issues to examine there. There are. Well, I think it's important you put the the coyote and the roadrunner in a wider cultural context. I think it that's is. what you can do. Definitely. You can really you can bring some depth and nuance to the story of the of of the uh, coyote, especially his frustration with the Acme Corporation and its defective merchandise. I can't wait to hear what Sarah Paulson does with Meep Meep. <laughs> she's gonna win. She's gonna win another Emmy. You know, she's gonna win another Emmy for that. <laughs> How about you, Jen? So. I have an idea that I actually am excited about and I think is a legitimate idea. And Ryan Murphy, who I'm sure listens to our podcast every week, should feel free to call me. Feud Madonna. Every feud that Madonna has ever had with anybody. Like, how has Madonna not been part of the Ryan Murphy universe already? It seems like just an oversight. So it'd be like Madonna, Cindy Lauper, you know, Madonna, Warren Beatty, Madonna, Sean Penn, Madonna, Lady Gaga. And if Madonna's not willing to play herself, get Lady Gaga to play Madonna. How good would that be? So would this be a spinoff? Of feud where it's its own series and it's feud colon Madonna and each season is a different <laughs> Madonna feud. 
No, I think, well, <laughs> you could do it that way. Or you could just do all of Madonna's feuds. And like, you know, one episode would be okay, just okay. Donna, Cindy Lauper. One episode would be Madonna, you know, whoever else. Um, although you could do just Madonna, Sean Penn, I suppose. I don't know. There's a lot. I I'm like saying that. there's a lot. Of- <laughs> and you get Ben Foster to play Sean Penn. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, I don't know. I mean, why does this even need to be a part of feud? Why can't it be its own thing? Why can't it just be like AMS American Madonna story? You know, <laughs> like be. each season is a different Madonna yes. feud. I, it could be. There's so many possibilities here, Jen. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. I like this. And I do think Lady Gaga could play Madonna. So what's your suggestion? Oh, my suggestion is I would like to see Ryan Murphy take on the feud between Shonda Rhimes and Patrick Dempsey on the set of Grey's Anatomy and how it <laughs> and how it led to him being killed off in like the craziest fashion on the show. I like But that. I want Patrick I like Dempsey that. to play himself. <laughs> and Shonda Rhimes, obviously, too. But she would be hard You could just do a whole like feud Grey's Anatomy, really, because there's all kinds yeah. of... Well, there was the Catherine that... Heigl uh, one, but... Isaiah Washington. Isaiah Washington. True. There's yeah. there's a lot to do there. And I think the, like, I think it would be, like, I, I think feud, like, it fits within this this world he set up with the first season where, you know, you have an onset feud, but I think this one might, people might get a little more excited about it because it's more, um, <laughs> they uh, remember it. day. Yeah. And it's, there just might be more curious as to what happened there. And I think you could, you know, you could do a little reporting, do a little micro oral history of right. what was going on, talking to everyone who worked with them. And you could really get a factual, I can tell that Gazelle has already planned our coverage of this hypothetical show yeah. that does not yet exist. Yes, yes. <laughs> Blank, you're gonna you're gonna flood the zone. Yep. You're gonna flood yep. the zone with that. So yes. so that's my feud choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you these are all legitimately good ideas. They actually yeah. are. Listeners, we're sure you have a lot of ideas here and we'd love to hear them. So if you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Next up, we're talking the Ryan Murphy TV universe. We'll be right back. So on Sunday night, Ryan Murphy premiered his new show, Feud, as we just discussed, and it focuses on the infamous feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford on the set of 1962's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And this show is just the latest in Murphy's growing empire of anthology series. He currently has three anthology series he's working on with multiple seasons that have been announced for each one. Feud just started, but last week he announced the second season will focus on Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Last year's American Crime Story, which focused on the O.J. Simpson trial in its first season, will next take on Hurricane Katrina and then the assassination of Gianni Versace, followed by a fourth season on the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And then there's his first anthology series, American Horror Story, which was renewed for season seven, eight, and nine recently. Yeah. And Murphy recently said the next season will focus on the fallout from the 2016 presidential election. So that's a whole lot of TV shows. That Wait, that's a part of American Horror Story? Yeah. Yes. I I admire his nerve in, in putting that there. I know. And he's, he said it won't look at the uh, campaign. So it's not going to look at Hillary versus Trump. But mm-hmm. it's going to look at 
kind of everything that happened after election night because the way it fun- unfolded was kind of like a horror story. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. it's, yeah, it's it's ballsy, that's for sure. Interesting. Um, but I, I thought we could start just by talking about, you know, how common is it for a t- TV creator ha- to have this many TV shows going on at the same time? It's actually uh, not that uncommon. It's not that uncommon. And, you know, it it, it often happens that uh, 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 a an executive producer usually, you know, somebody who's almost like an imp- more of an impresario than a hands-on type of person has a bunch of different shows on the air. I mean, you know, going back through the history of television, it's been it's happened. I mean, you know, Desilu Productions had uh, as many as a dozen shows actively in production at one time. And in theory, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were were overseeing all of those. But of course, no, there's no possible way. There's just not as not that many hours in a day. You hire you hire people that you trust and you let them run the show. And then on a, a you know, that's the extreme. But uh, like D- Dick Wolf of Law and Order had, you know, at one point he had like Law and Order, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Law and Order. Uh, what was yeah. the other one? Uh, Criminal Intent. Right. And I think it was like law and order parking violations and law and order, uh, you know, <laughs> tax, tax assessor's office. And I mean, it was ridiculous. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot of this kind of thing. David E. Kelly at one sure. point had three shows on the air at the same time. Norman Lear had right. like, I think there was like one point in the 70s where he had like five or six. At the so, same time. Yeah. yeah, at the same time. And, and you know, all on CBS. And and so there's certainly there's a precedent for and this. And Shonda Rhimes obviously has Shonda, Shonda Rhimes, Land. yep. She has Shonda but, Land. What is that, up to four but, now? But, you know, it's more, it, it's at, I think it's more. Four or five, that, right? At least five. five. Yeah. I mean, it's more like a production company. So, mm-hmm. you know, other people are creating shows for Shonda Land. Her shows are only Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, I believe. <laughs> right. Whereas even How to Get Away with Murder, she's not actively involved with that. Whereas I guess with Ryan Murphy, I'm not clear on how it, I, he's he has his hand in all of them. Right. It's not clear how much he's doing for each. You know, for uh, People versus OJ, he directed a a number of episodes. I believe the first two, maybe another one, and he was involved with writing, but there were. Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski were the ones who were in charge yeah. of, of yeah. overseeing the writing process. Which is probably why that one yeah. felt more subtle than his others. Yes. Because it's not, so. it was, I think it was more their sense of, like, this is the people who wrote Ed Wood and the people versus Larry Flint wrote that. Right. So. Right. <laughs> and with, with Feud, he, he's written a handful of them, not all of them, and directed a handful of them. So he's definitely, you know, He's definitely. Sh- I, I I would imagine he's has some role in shaping each one of them. And what mm-hmm. seems to me to be different between him and these other creators is there's kind of this sheen of prestige with everything he does. Right. So it's kind of there. Can't prestige. A, yeah. I would camp say prestige. I was so, going to say maybe prestige is not quite exactly what he brings. You know, like he's he's a, you know. I mean, I think because he's having big name stars on these yeah. shows that yeah. makes it feel prestige. Like when you have Susan Sarandon and, you know, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and John Travolta mm-hmm. starring on your TV shows, mm-hmm. people are going to think of them in a different way than they do something like Law & Order where they're pumping it out. But what's interesting, though, about that Law & Order comparison is that as you just went down that list of shows that he's doing – there is this rip from the headlines kind of element more and more to 
what he's doing with each of these different franchises, which I think is kind of interesting. And it's, it's a, it's, for lack of a better way of putting it, a more kind of imaginative rip from the headlines, a more creative uh, way of doing it than Law and Order did. But there is an element of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like he's doing bringing the biopic to television in a way. Um, yeah. And well, he's expanding kind of like it. the type of stories you would even see on uh, as a Lifetime movie. Or whatnot. Well, there are there 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 are there's certainly a <clears throat> a tradition for this kind of story, and, and in fact, the heyday for the kind of thing that you know feud the Betty Davis Joan Crawford uh, uh, experience. That's the kind of thing where 15, 20 years ago that would have been a miniseries and it would have run on ABC. Mm-hmm. And in fact, yeah. um, some of the very best examples of this form. I, I mean, I have been noticing for quite some time that television tends to have a much better track record with interesting sort of behind the scenes docudramas about show business than they do with almost any other kind of real life thing that they do. When they when they tell stories of uh, war or, you know, a presidency or what have you, um, it's often very superficial or scattered. But uh, but in showbiz, I think because they just people involved with it know it so well, it tends mm-hmm. to have more of a bite. And and it, when I was writing uh, TV, the book with with Alan Sepinwall, we had the section on miniseries and movies and we made our list and, and we both remarked that like the the long list before you narrowed it down, it was very heavily weighted towards showbiz subjects, you know, and mm. and uh, the uh, two, actually two of them, uh, Me and My Shadows, the Judy Garland uh, two-parter with the Judy Davis ended up being in the book like as one of the 10 best miniseries and uh, James Dean, the TNT movie with James Franco. Mm-hmm. Which was excellent. I mean, it was a standalone movie. Um, that was in there. And they the, the one on the Beach Boys uh, with uh, Frederick Weller was excellent. And, you know, I could I could just – we could do a whole show just on good showbiz stuff. But I think what do, what this one does differently is it's just more detailed. It's just – I mean, they to have an entire season to play with, it really does feel like you're reading like – one of those big fat nonfiction books about the making of a particular movie, like something like the devil's candy mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, which was a whole book about the making of the bonfire, the vanities or um, Lil- Lillian Ross's picture, which is one of the best books of its kind, which is about the making of John Houston's, the red badge of courage. I think that's sort of, to me, that's what this show reminds me of the most is the experience of reading like a three or 400 page book about one mm-hmm. production. To Gazelle's point, I think what's also different is that, you know, you look at some of those older miniseries that you were talking about that would have been, they would have been based around one like major name in the cast. Whereas now, you know, Ryan Murphy, like if you had said 10 years ago, there's going to be a series with Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon and Alfred Molina and Stanley Tucci and Judy Davis, you would have been like, no, that's not going to (laughs) happen. They're not going to do a TV show. I mean, it helps that they're limited because they don't have to sign on for who knows how many seasons, but but he is able to gather these really formidable actors all in these casts in a way that is pretty extraordinary and seems seems to keep kind of his reputation for doing that seems to be uh, expanding. It is. And yet we, here's what's curious about it, though, is um, the, he, the actors do love to be in his stuff. But except for American Crime Story, the, the first season with O.J., uh, Ryan Murphy has not done a show where people – really think it's like a deep and complicated work of art. Like, I don't think that's why actors want to be in his productions. And, and Mm -hmm. I think he's, he's fairly new to this 
this idea of the one-off, like the kind of true detective eight episodes and you're done kind of thing. American Horror Story is is a different kind of animal because he has this floating repertory company of actors who just kept appearing season after season. And I don't think you're going to see I, – I don't think we were ever, ever going to see John Travolta playing somebody else on a – you know, like I think mm-hmm. that feels like a one-shot to me. Right. And I think mm-hmm. this kind of yeah. – these are one-shots. I don't think, you know – unless Susan Sarandon really enjoyed the experience, I don't think we're going to see her – you know, showing up playing another famous person like once a year indefinitely. Right. You know, and, right. and, and yeah, I think his in origins a way, are more, you know, he started with popular and yeah. flea. And- yeah, yeah. And and I think like this this kind of this particular area of his empire is interesting and it feels different from the others. Like I don't feel that something like feud and um American crime story have anything in common with say glee or nip tuck or american horror no. story they don't they just no. don't feel at I, all similar to me i forgot about right. his other anthology series scream queens yes which is different from these it's more in the vein of his work on popular and right. Glee. but it is an right. anthology series where it's sort of weird it's like a kind it's like a, you know glee meets american horror yeah story. exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah i don't know quite how i feel about all these shows he's doing, and I won't know until I see them. OJ, I think, surprised me by how much I liked it. Yeah. But taking on classic historical figures is always tricky, and I don't always like it when it's done on film either. Mm-hmm. Like, like I didn't love The Aviator because it just felt like, even though Kate Blanchett is a great actress, it felt too forced to watch her being Catherine Hepburn, you yeah. know? So I I think he's he's entering a very... A very risky territory, in term because he's already set up all of these, and like his first one was a hit, but it remains to be seen how feud will be received. That feud hasn't gotten raves in the way that People versus OJ did. I didn't and, like it. I didn't like. I was, and I was frankly surprised by how much I didn't like it. This is this kind of a thing is usually catnip to me. What what did you not like about it? Well, it, there were a few issues. One of them was, and this is the kind of thing where a lot, most of the people who watch the show are just not going to care at all. But there were some liberties that were taken with what actually happened that felt unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a big, I'm not a person who goes around complaining that that a, a story based on history is changing stuff. That doesn't really bother me that much. If it's mm-hmm. in the service of drama, if there's some kind of larger point to it, like you know, Shakes- a lot of Shakespeare's tragedies were based on real people, and 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 he just made stuff up. You know, and and it's fine. I mean, in certain contexts, it's fine. But what bothers me is when things are made up that don't necessarily improve the story. So what could you give Well, an for example? an example, you know, I don't know how spoilery we want to get, but there's a, a rather major affair that happens mm-hmm. on the set mm-hmm. of this show mm-hmm. that, as far as I have been able to determine, simply did not happen. Mm-hmm. Simply did not happen. And my question is, when you've got Betty Davis and Joan Crawford... And the director, Robert Aldrich, and all of these other hard-headed, colorful Hollywood figures like Jack Warner, all of whom have, you know, figuratively bodies buried and and scandals and, and, and uh, you know, feuds and all kinds of melodramatic stuff going on in their lives. Why do you need to add to it? Right. Why, I, I mm-hmm. don't understand why you need to add to it. Some of the Some of the choices seem puzzling to me. And then there's also the other issue, which is... I'm just not sure that we needed an entire season of this story. Yeah. I'm not sure that we needed an entire season of this story. I, I'm not sure that we even needed four hours of this story. 
of this particular story. Like it could have been a TV movie. Yeah, than, yeah, or it could have been a two-parter or something. And 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 uh, I think uh, you know, obviously, if you if you're interested in the subject matter, you're going to want you know probably you'll be happy to watch it all all season long. But uh, I felt like what I was seeing was uh, these bigger than life historical figures were kind of being turned into sitcom characters, where the where the mm-hmm. where the the each episode of the show is about um, here's the here's the contrived conflict between one or more major characters and how will it be resolved at the end? And then they kind of push the reset button. It's like, can they find a way to work together? And by the end of the episode, either everybody seems to hate each other and all hope seems lost, or they figured out how to tentatively make a truce Mm -hmm. of some kind. And, and it's like, it's kind of a little too television-y for me, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. I think with something like OJ, it was kind of perfect because we had like a bit of distance from it, yet there was still this strong cultural connect- connection to it. And there was just so much to explore from a different perspective than we had seen when the trial actually unfolded. Right. And here, we're very removed from it. And also, like you said, it just, I think a lot of people have talked about how, you know, tonally, it's kind of campy but not quite campy enough see that was that was another issue of mine it's like just go ahead and lean like either make it like ridiculous really really over the top like melodrama exaggerated caricature or be realistic part of what bothered me with this is how much expositional dialogue there is in order to tell you what is going on at the time and to be like woman have it really bad in this industry. Yeah. And it's it's kind of flag posting things in a way that doesn't feel well natural. that bracketing device where they're interviewing the, you know, Joan, yeah, where they or, got like yeah. Yeah. Olivia de Havilland. Right. Olivia yeah. de Havilland and Joan Blondell are are being interviewed backstage and basically they're they're just kind of reciting the kind of observations that you would come across in in a in a blog post about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Right. And 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 they're saying things that felt period wrong. You know, when what's her name? Olivia de Havilland says uh she used the word ballsy to describe Betty Davis's performance in the movie. It's like, did any did anyone right. describe acting that <laughs> way in like the 70s, which is when this is taking yeah. place? I don't think they did. It felt to me, and I don't know if this is the case, but that they had shot the whole show without it. And then somebody said, you know what, we need to explain more of the history behind this because some people might not get it. And then they added those 1978 Oscar you know, at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion interviews in it afterwards, because it just felt a little bit tacked on to me. And you compare it to to People versus OJ, for example, even though maybe that's not a fair comparison, but I felt like you could watch that show without knowing the history of that trial. And it was very seamlessly integrated, but it still felt like you were living in the moment. There wasn't this element of stopping to explain things to people Mm -hmm. uh, to the same degree. What I do like are moments, moments when you... I think it just comes down to Jessica Lange's performance. It can be so heartbreaking at times to watch her, you know, struggling with this yeah. uh, rivalry. And, you know, uh, Susan Sarandon is also great as Betty Davis, partly because she bears such a great resemblance to her. But, I, I mean, this is, really a, a, this is really a show about Joan Crawford and kind mm-hmm. of her um, just really 
Well, she's Sol- she's Salieri to uh, to Betty Davis's Mozart. Yeah, that's the way they positioned it, and I had an issue with that too because Betty Davis was certainly a more uh, exciting, fun performer to watch because she was funny. Joan mm-hmm. Crawford was never known for being funny, but I, just as a as somebody who loves old movies, I would never I would never try to position this narrative as uh, Betty Davis was the greater of the two actresses. I never felt that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I. Don't, but I do think that there is that understanding and that Betty Davis felt that she was superior, maybe. Yeah. So there is oh, that. Yeah, I think she, oh, I'm sure she did. Yeah. But I, I also think Joan Crawford felt she was superior to Betty right. Davis. But she maybe, well, the show at least makes it seem like she had much more insecurity. Yeah, when it, it did. Yeah. It did. My feeling about the show is I, I agree with Matt in terms of what he was saying about a lot of the issues and flaws. And, and I felt like it. It finally gets going to me in episodes four and five, especially episode five, which is the one about the Oscars ceremony. That's when I felt like the show was doing more of what I wanted and expected it to do uh, and living in the moment a little bit more and letting that things just kind of unfold. And if you didn't know the story of how Joan Crawford's manipulated things at that Academy Awards ceremony, it was fascinating to watch. But then my other my other question was, you know, we all got up to that point, like they gave us the first five episodes and nothing else. And I was kind of like. Well, c- couldn't the show be over here? Because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. What what else they wanted to explore beyond that? Right. Like, what do we? I don't know much beyond that in terms of what happens in regards to their feud after that point. That's yeah. like the the climax. But I I don't know. That I am curious to. see Well, what you know, they I do. can I can fill in the general outlines for you, which is they tried to pair them up again, and uh, uh, mm. Betty Davis essentially uh, they couldn't work together. Oh, was it they, hush hush? Yeah, Betty hush hush, sweet Charlotte, yeah. and they kicked her out, and Olivia De Havilland took her place. That's right. Mm-hmm. And and it was just a case where you know what they say, creative differences. But but I think the larger story is that even though both of these actresses did get a major career bump from that movie, it was ultimately not the kind of career bump that ultimately they might have wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they found themselves in this position of okay, I've rejuvenated p- my career in a gothic horror movie, where we're essentially playing kind of gargoyles, really, and that's right. the kind of roles that they continue to be offered. And Joan Crawford, I believe, retired only you know less than a decade after that. She completely retired from acting. Right. You know, she did this horrible movie, a, a science fiction film called Trog, which if you've never seen it, wow. Is it something? <laughs> yeah. Is it something? Yeah, and and uh, and then she was in an episode of Night Gallery directed by uh, Steven Spielberg when he was like nineteen. Oh yeah, uh, where she uh, she played a, a woman who was going blind and needed an eye transplant or something like that. It was a, it, but you know that was it. And Betty Davis, we she continued to act, but it was hard. It just got harder. It just got harder and harder to get good roles. And I, and I can see exploring some of that, but like, is it enough for three more episodes? Like, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't oh, know. I haven't seen the three episodes. I don't know. It would seem an- right. anticlimactic. I mean, I guess it comes back to what we were saying about um, kind of the issue with the entire series where a lot of even the first five episodes that we've seen don't really feel like they needed to be five episodes, you know? So the last three, there's probably just as much to explore in those last three that was explored in the first five. Yeah. But there's probably, well, I mean, we'll see, but. It's there's a lot of like there's a lot of meandering, you know, scenes with the reporters, scenes with them. There's not a lot that happens, but you kind of see similar types of scenes play out over and over again. Yes. And, you know, trying to get uh, trying to get, you know, Robert Aldrich, Betty Davis or Joan Crawford to talk smack about one of the other three people Mm -hmm. in that 
triangle to head a hopper. And that's kind of what you were saying, Matt, about the sitcom antics of it a yeah. little bit. Yeah, and it's um, like, you know, what wacky trouble will Betty Davis yeah. and Joan Crawford get in this week? Yeah. Uh, which, and again, like, if that was what the show was, I think I kind of would have applauded it. Yeah. And know? I mean, he's he's in a tricky spot here, like, subject matter-wise. You know, Willa Paskin at Slate talked about this a little bit in her review, which when you're doing a show when the whole appeal is kind of a cat fight, mm-hmm. and if you embrace that fully, you're kind of, you're going to be accused of being sexist. But if you don't embrace it and kind of try to, you know, signpost all these things about how <laughs> Hollywood is sexist, you're going to be kind of boring. Right. So yeah. he's kind of in this. Very, he's shooting right down the middle. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to make a war movie or an anti-war movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. I will say, though, at, at no point did I feel like, gosh, you know, I, wa- I want to turn this off or I'm bored and I'm never going to I don't want to watch the next episode. Like I still was I still was engaged enough. I wanted to keep going, you know? Yeah. I kind of came down a little bit. I I could have been okay not going, but knowing that the Oscars episode was going to happen, I <laughs> wanted to go in order to see that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think there's uh, something to be said for um, w- the kind of work he's doing in this vein. I mean, I like it. I like it a lot. I just uh, I just sometimes think that a lot of the problems come down to it's I it's sort of ironic in a way. The format, this self-contained, you know, anthology where the unit of measure is the season and not the episode is very liberating in some ways. But I think like for all the problems that it solves, I think it it, it sort of brings up a new set of problems that then have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. You know, like instead of having the question of how do I fit an entire life into two hours or four hours or whatever, then the question becomes how do we dole out the narrative of the production of a single motion picture in a period of a few months after that in a way that fills up a whole season of television and it doesn't feel like we're padding it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's weird. It's like you've taken, you know, you've taken an enormous leap forward, but there was also a, a big leap back at the same time. It's like, you know, right. you've solved, you've, you've solved some of the lingering issues with television, but then you've got this whole new set of issues related to television. It's, it's, it's gotta be maddening. Yeah. I have to say, we mentioned earlier that, you know, the next feud is going to be Charles and Diana. And I have a feeling that might be a more interesting one, just that more more meat to dig into and that people, everybody knows that story, I think, because it's it's more recent and, and just has more, I think, cultural resonance. So I have a feeling like the second season of this might be a little more intriguing. I, maybe it's just me. Well, I guess I, I'm not sh- clear what the feud is there. Is it? The breakdown of their marriage? I assume so. No, uh, I think what it is is that uh, uh, Diana was uh, very uh, kind of a revolutionary royal in the way that she uh, interacted with the media and the public. And and she was not – she didn't do things the way they were supposed to be done. And Charles had serious issues with that. Right, right. But that's that's intertwined with the breakdown of their marriage. But it's it's, – And it's not just a feud really between the two of them. It's her and the whole royal family really. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it might kind of coincide with season four of The Crown <laughs> if, they, if they take on all that. I think they're missing some opportunities yeah. for crossover here. Yeah. I mean, I've I, I've been contending from the very beginning of uh, of uh, American Crime Story that they need to just keep bringing Johnny Cochran back. Like, you know, they need to do a season about, you know, Michael Jackson's uh, uh, you know, child molestation charges and then you can bring back Johnny Cochran. 
You know, just like they should just do every season should have Johnny Cochran. That's what they should do. That well, so here's the good news. All the problems. They, they're bringing back Battle of the Network Stars. So oh, ideally, right. can you imagine like all of the Ryan Murphy universe involved in Battle of the Network well, Stars? Jen, can you or just explain, even could you explain briefly what Battle of the Network Stars is? Yes, I will for the young and um, <laughs> and then I'll cry later. Ken Burns banjo music begins to play. <laughs> Back in my day, Farrah Fawcett was in the Olympics. Um, so what used to happen was they would have, this was back when there was only CBS, NBC, and ABC, essentially. And they would, it was like having the Olympics. And you would have the stars from all these networks competing against each other in ridiculous events, tug of war, relay races, etc. cetera. Uh, and it was really fun. And it's, it's especially fun to watch now because you see, you know, Telly Savalas on the sidelines and Jim Short smoking a cigar. Like it was, it was a different time. <laughs> Uh, and Howard Cosell Howard Cosell was calling it like it was a real sporting event and and see his pathetic attempts to amp up the drama like they had I remember when I it was like I don't remember I was a kid but they had tug of war they had tug of war where it was like one network against the other network and the anchors were Mr. T on the NBC (laughs) side of the rope and Tom Wopad of the Dukes of Hazzard on the other (laughs) And, and Howard Cosell is trying to get us really excited about that. And he kept repeating the phrase, Mr. T versus Tom Wopat. <laughs> oh, man. And when we come yeah. back, Mr. T versus Tom Wopat. <laughs> How could you not want to come back for that? I, I mean, came really. back for it. I came back for it. I, was, I, I knew Mr. T was going to take it because he's of Mr. Course. T. And that's exactly what happened. But, you know, yeah. And all the fools should be pitied. Um, but, yeah, so they... <laughs> So they they have brought it back or they're in the process of trying to bring it back. And obviously, there are so many more networks now that the way they're going to handle this, apparently, is doing it by genre. So hypothetically, the cop show team would would compete against the medical show team or something like that. So I'm just envisioning, you know, anybody who's in a show about royal families being a potential team on Battle of the Network Stars or, you know, American Horror Story versus American Crime Story. I just feel like there's a lot of just Ryan Murphy-specific possibilities. Battle of the Murphy Stars, bring yeah. it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the problem is then, you know, you get Sarah Paulson versus Sarah Paulson. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that. I would. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's ARIA. This week, we have special guest Vulture editor, Jordan Cruciola. After weeks of speculating about Jughead's sexual orientation on the CW's Archie Comics adaptation, Riverdale, Jughead Jones kissed Betty Cooper on last Thursday's episode. As Betty slipped into an anxiety spiral about her deceitful parents and imprisoned sister, Jughead comforted his friend, then planted a sweet kiss on her lips. One year ago, it was announced that Archie Comics writer Tip Zdarsky would put to rest long-standing speculation about the beloved character's preferences by making him asexual. In Jughead number 4, he did just that. It was a massive win for a community that has severely lacked in representation in popular media. That means a lot of people are now justifiably upset there might be asexual erasure going on with the Riverdale incarnation of the character. Headlines declaring, quote, Jughead not to be asexual or that Riverdale is passing up a rare chance to feature an asexual character have already cropped up six episodes into the first season. As an openly asexual person, I, for one, support the decision to let Jughead find his way. An important thing to consider is that Jughead's preferences are being reduced to whether or not he is simply asexual, which takes away from the nuance of the asexual spectrum. Some of the better articles discussing Jughead's orientation point out that his Riverdale incarnation 
might not necessarily be aromantic, even if he is asexual. I, for example, identify as a panromantic gray asexual. That means I'm capable of having non-sexual crushes on anyone, regardless of gender or sex, and that my asexuality isn't written in stone. There's that gray area where I'm philosophically flexible. I am not motivated by sexual desire and have never had any sexual partners, but I do experience deep love through my friendships and have experienced many instances of crushing on people. I am also a very affectionate person, and many asexual individuals appreciate, enjoy, and seek out physical feedback from others, just like gay, straight, or bi individuals do. The ultimate endgame just looks different than we've been taught to expect in health class, on TV, and in the movies. It's about setting the correct boundaries with people in your life who are comfortable sharing such closeness without it leading to a sexual relationship. It takes some searching for the right people, but it can be done. And I write all this as a 31-year-old woman. Jughead is probably about 15, living with no asexual role models around him. I didn't even have the words panromantic, gray asexual in my vocabulary until about two years ago. In high school, I was mostly wondering when I was going to start having the same feelings everyone else around me talked about all the time. Yes, Jughead could be on Tumblr relating to other closeted youths, but it's more likely he's still figuring himself out. Add in that Jughead is something of a black sheep, and it further complicates matters. He's only recently unestranged from his best friend, Archie, a guy who everyone, including the music teacher, is lusting after since he got hot over the summer. And the Riverdale universe is also an extremely sexual one. The jocks have a misogynist playbook dedicated to which girls they've had sex with. In the show's creative low point, Veronica kisses Betty to prove something to Cheryl Blossom at cheerleading tryouts. And a game of seven minutes in heaven between Veronica and Archie threatens to tear Betty and Veronica apart before they even get started. While Kevin Keller is a wonderfully self-possessed young gay boy, his experience isn't the same as a would-be asexual jughead. Gay characters are able to appear as sexually realized human beings on TV because we've seen them represented before. If jughead does turn out to be asexual, he's carving this path to self-discovery on television entirely on his own. And whenever everyone around you is pawing at each other because their hormones work differently than yours, it's understandable that he would behave according to his context. The precursor to Jughead kissing Betty actually came in episode five. The two are about to depart for Jason Blossom's memorial service together, and Betty remarks on how well Jughead cleans up in his suit jacket and button-down. Jughead looks down and shrugs, bashfully. His friendships are strengthening, and he seems to have found a group for the first time. But he is still a character who does not express or receive affection often, if ever. To be seen as someone special or regarded with an extra-long look is a powerful moment for a young person who has made living in isolation a part of his moody gestalt. As we have recently learned about Jughead, keeping arm's length between himself and others might be a tactic for preserving secrets, too, like the fact that his father is a south-side-of-town criminal or that he's homeless, living on a cot in his workplace. To at least feel seen by someone, especially if you're sorting out your sexual identity, could understandably stir up some feelings and there probably isn't a safer person in Jughead's life than Betty Cooper. Part of discovering your asexuality is exploring your sexuality, which means that if Jughead wants to kiss one of his best friends to figure some things out, or to feel connected to another person on a deeper level without having formed the vernacular to build boundaries around affectionate but non-sexual contact, I don't feel like a betrayed member of the asexual community. And giving Jughead a coming out narrative could create a dialogue about the asexual experience we have literally never seen before on broadcast TV. Of course, if Riverdale gets more seasons and it fails to develop Jughead's asexuality, that would indeed be a disappointing omission and a huge missed opportunity to do something truly new and brave with a character on screen. 
For now, though, I don't want Jughead to be hemmed in by anyone's expectations of him before he's even had a chance to figure out what he likes and what he doesn't. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zeller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zeller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Come back next week for Mr. T. This is Tom Wilkins. <laughs>